I didn't swear there. He just, <laughs> he just picked you out. <laughs> We're prepared for any eventuality. <laughs> it could get rough. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Leanne, for joining us <laughs> in our own home. We're going to be talking on this change in faith with Nathan Oates, the pastor of Emmaus Church Community in Lincoln, California. Interestingly, Nathan and I grew up in the same youth group, mm-hmm. but as far as things we talk about on changing faith, he has a different memory of growing up in the same youth group in church uh, toward the very things that we talk about. So uh, it's, it's interesting to hear the difference. So we hope you enjoy it and maybe it'll be helpful for you also. Here we go with Nathan. Welcome, Nathan Oates, to Changing Faith. Thanks. It's a podcast. Right on. Not to be confused with the Changing Faith podcast that came on after us, but now has more episodes. That's unfortunate. We we won't talk about them. We we don't have the the. We don't just changing faith, not the changing faith. Well, they actually have podcast in their name. Oh, so we're just changing faith. They're changing faith podcast. I think the too, probably kind of like the Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, it's better to take the the off of it. That's right. Unnecessary. Yeah. The, uh, what's the name of your church? Emmaus Church Community. Emmaus Church Community. Not the Emmaus Church Community. No, just drop the the. Emmaus (laughs) Church Community. Yeah. Yeah. So pastor of Emmaus Church Community is joining us. Uh, You are, well, we go back to the early 80s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So for some of our listeners, that's lifetimes ago. That's right. It's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'd like to introduce you to our listeners, talk a little bit about your background okay, and your own faith journey, because mm-hmm. faith, unless it's dead, changes and grows. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and then a little bit of talking about the phenomenon that we've, we've talked about on uh, episodes of this podcast mm-hmm. and, and your perspective okay. uh, as somebody with a little different perspective than somebody who's uh, in the old school of the denomination, the way it was for decades going back. Um, So you were a young teenager when your Mm -hmm. family started attending a Nazarene church. Right. Yeah. I think it was 1984. We started coming to uh, a Nazarene church. I would have been 12 and, um, yeah, I'm not sure what initiated that. Ultimately, hmm. my parent, my mom and her sister and a whole bunch of kids between them started coming to church. And uh, I don't remember much about that experience in the sixth grade or the fifth grade, whatever that was. It was the next year. So about for about nine months, it's pretty unremarkable um, in my memory. But then what what catalyzed some pretty significant, some very significant life change was moving into a middle school ministry, um, with, with a dedicated youth pastor. I don't know how much, how many names you want to try to use on this or not, but, um, (laughs) so basically I met a man who knew Jesus. If if we felt like we were honoring. Yeah, absolutely. Tim. Yeah. Yeah. It's a man named Tim Hansen still, still in Placer County. Um, and he, he just introduced me to this idea that, that Jesus actually cared. It's not that others hadn't, but I didn't receive it. I couldn't, I wasn't seeing through the Sunday school lessons or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he introduced me this idea that Jesus loved me and I could have a relationship with Jesus. That was totally, totally unknown 
to me. Nobody in my world talked like that. Nobody wow. followed God in my family or in my uh, extended family. So, um, so that was a pretty captivating idea, as you can imagine. So it wasn't so much that I was drawn into the faith uh, through maybe what might be seen as more traditional um, uh, doors, like, man, I hit rock bottom. I mean, I was only 13 years old. I hadn't done anything wrong, really. Um, uh, I wasn't super aware of my sin or my need for a savior, even though I clearly that was true. But it was the it was the idea that I could have a relationship with God and I could know what He wants me to do with my life. That was hmm. that was totally compelling to me. This idea that uh, that my life had purpose and that it was connected to the Creator and I could I could kind of come into line with that. That was fascinating. So. It wasn't an overnight kind of thing. I think we were we were with Tim Hansen for a couple of years upstairs in that old church. Yeah. And, um, but eventually, just kind of alone in my room one night, I prayed that God would come into my life, and I told Jesus I wanted to follow Him. And uh, a little while later, I was baptized. One of the things that was I always have to tell this part of the story with the first part because uh, you know the first part is this sort of prayer. It was real. Um, it, by that, I mean, it was genuine. Um, and I believe that Christ uh, received me in a sense at that moment. Um, but I didn't recognize any significant change. Um, but Tim told me that I should I should pray for somebody to become a Christian. I should pray for somebody else. I should read a paragraph of Matthew's gospel every day, is what he told me. And I did that. And I should pray for someone to meet God in Christ. And so he's, I said, well, who should I pray for? And he said, well, pray for the person that you think would be the least likely to become a Christian. <laughs> and that was my dad. So I started praying for my dad, who at the time was totally antagonistic to uh, and uninterested in anything church-related or God-related. Mm -hmm. was drinking way too much. And, um, so I prayed for him every day for nine months. And just to kind of give you a sense of kind of the tone or the uh, tone, I guess, or the temperature of the relationship. I had a ton of respect for my dad. We had a really good relationship. But when it came to things about spirituality, I knew he was not in favor of my interest in spirituality or in God. So I'd be reading the Bible in the morning before I went to school, and I'd hear him come up the stairs to say goodbye before work. And I would actually put my Bible in the drawer because hmm. I, I didn't want I just didn't know what he would think about me if he saw me reading the Bible, you know? Um, so he was not encouraging me in my devotion to God, right? Uh, he just sort of had this total hands-off thing happening. Anyway, he ends up, he ends up committing his life to Jesus hmm. nine months after I do. And that's what rocked my world because I could not imagine a more unlikely person to convert to Christianity than my dad. He wasn't a bad man. He just didn't have any interest in God. Um, he's an honest and hardworking man. But man, when he surrendered and submitted his life to God and stopped drinking that night, uh, it was like a symbolic but actual uh, piece of his conversion that ended up kind of serving as a um, as like representation of a real change that had happened in him. That spooked me because then I thought, all right, so this is real and prayer works. Uh, it's like I put my finger in an electric socket. I was like, oh, I have tapped into something here wow. that is real. And so 
at a time, so this is in eighth grade. So at a time when all my friends are exploring and rebelling and people in the church, even friends of ours in the youth ministry there, which was strong, um, were kind of playing around and trying out things. I was this like <laughs> passionate, um, you know, zealot because I was watching one person after another in my family become a hmm. Christian, like right in front of my eyes. So, um, it was a real interesting dynamic. I was very committed to Christ through high school. And it wasn't because I was, uh, it wasn't because of me. It was because God was changing my, my life. He was changing my whole family's life right in front of me. So that's how it kind of started. And along those lines, I would also point out, because I'm aware of it, the incredible yeah. leadership that this occurred under. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff McFarland, Steve mm -hmm. Scott, Pastor Bonner, right. Tim Hansen. Yeah, genuine men of God. Incredible mm -hmm. uh, guidance and leadership that, uh, you know, even though we look at our generation and we see a lot of our peers mm -hmm. who aren't involved in the church mm -hmm. may not still have a faith. Mm -hmm. But we also see, we see you, uh, myself, Dr. Gwaine, mm -hmm. many others who were fruit of that particular church yeah, in the eighties for sure. Um, big part of, you know, I, I just want to throw that in too. And also, and you talking about your dad, mm -hmm. it, it's, I, I just wish so much that listeners could see what I do mm -hmm. to see the man who he has been for the last 30 years, yeah. plus the years, mm -hmm. the leadership he's shown in the church and the, in the community. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Uh, this this yeah. is, uh, just an actual absolute pillar of, mm. of the school district, mm -hmm. high school district, uh, president and right. Yeah. Is, that, is that correct? And, and, uh, I served on the board with him back in, Oh, I don't know, probably 2000. When, when did you start? We started in 0405. So, okay. Uh, so it would have been a little bit after yeah, 2000. early 2000. So he was probably mm -hmm. on yeah. the board. Uh, and then leader at Emmaus community. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Uh, so you saw, him come to Christ. Yeah. You saw him go from before to the man I think of him as. It's, yeah. it's just really interesting to yeah, hear that, knowing him, who he is today and mm -hmm. has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People are surprised to hear that he was 40 when he converted. Yeah. Um, and he's a man with flaws and issues and everything like everybody else, but he's, it was a gen, he actually met God. You know, he committed his life to God and he, uh, and he's been walking with him. So you said That's the word beautiful. genuine. I mm -hmm. love that word for, mm -hmm. for your day. He's a humble man. Mm -hmm. Um, and would probably not like that we're saying all these accolades about him. Um, uh, we should apologize to him. <laughs> it can be edited out if it yeah, is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and then just from the other perspective of your mom, too, when mm -hmm. we moved here 20 years ago and I had little children, mm -hmm. you know, still having babies in that stage, and I was involved in women's Bible study at, at the church that she was attending, and she was one of the leaders. And I and I know all of the the young moms in that group looked up to her so much. Mm -hmm. And just she she always had such peace and calm and the way she would talk about parenting and just the love that she had for you kids as mm -hmm. you were growing up. And I she was just a huge model to me as a, as a mom, you know, that that's who I aspired to be too. And I know a lot wow. of those other moms in that group really felt the same way. And then as I grew into leadership in the Bible study and was able to go to the leaders meetings with her and just hear about the love and wisdom that she had, mm -hmm. you know, of the Bible and of God, um, she was hmm, a big influence on me. Yeah, so, yeah, that's great to hear. So wonderful family. Thank for you. sure. I'd like to ask a follow up question about before that time. Mm -hmm. 
it seems like, and you can help me with this. It seems like there was um, involvement in the Mormon church by. Yeah. Sort of a strange branch. Like um, I was dedicated. My mom was as a kid, my mom was a part of the reorganized church. Of oh, Jesus RLDS. Christ. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So right. that was, uh, and I think for them it was a, it was a community and some kind of uh, religious structure and the sort like their parents were connected to a college. My grandparents now were connected to a college that the church owned in um, Iowa. So, but it didn't seem like it was something that was a significant part of her life as an adult. The la- I, you know, the, the only real connection I have to it is as an, as an infant, I was dedicated in, in an RLDS church by my, by my parents but my dad kind of tolerated it. I think my mom was trying to do the right thing. The interesting thing is that if, if we probably, if we had been, who knows really, but I can imagine if we had been invited into almost any church in the early eighties, we probably would have gone. I probably would have been really enthusiastic about (laughs) it. You know, uh, I'm grateful we were invited into a Bible teaching solid church, the, the Nazarene church in Auburn. Um, because, uh, I think they just knew all they recognized was some need for God for their kids as they grew up. And so I'm grateful. It's God's goodness that led us to where, where we ended up. It's interesting now to hear it was RLDS. I never knew that Mm -hmm. um, through whatever people equated it to the Mormon church, which I I don't do that now. (laughs) Okay. I see RLDS as as its own thing and and it's much more similar to the tradition we've grown up with. Than mm. the Mormon tradition. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, they're still using the doctrine of covenants and yeah. book of Mormon and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah. yeah we, we had contact with them in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So in college, so you have that background of kind of the evangelical world. Mm-hmm. And then you chose to go to a Catholic college. Right. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, not because it was Catholic, because it was supposedly similar to Stanford. I wanted to go to Stanford and didn't get in. <laughs> Beautiful campus. Like yeah, that. that's I know, That was the word. Very close, too. I got just some good financial aid to go there. So I, I thought that it would be a relatively conservative, uh, God-honoring space. And uh, to a degree it was. But it was, it was, they were pretty proud of being a real progressive Catholic school. Um, so... It was certainly the most liberal context I'd ever, I'd ever been in. Um, the teachings about Christianity and the Bible were not orthodox from any person's perspective, um, including the Catholic Church. They were they kind of prided themselves on just being really progressive in their thinking. So, uh, yeah, so it was a Catholic school. I got associate. I was associated with um, priests for the first time mm-hmm. as those who were teaching the classes and. Uh, there was a priest that lived in our building with us, but they weren't positive associations. I have a lot more respect for the Roman church now than I did after two years there. I think I saw, um, I saw a piece of, of, of things that wasn't very admirable. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I studied there for a couple of years and then through a series of events became convinced that my earlier perspective was immature. The earlier perspective was, I don't want to go hang out with Christians if I'm going to be in the ministry. I want to learn how to talk to people who aren't Christians, right? That's 18-year-old Nate thinking. So (laughs) uh, then at 20, um, 
I've become convinced through uh, several conversations with some really great people that I needed some theological education to sustain a ministry. So it was as simple as that. And I wasn't, the InterVarsity Bible study that I was attending at Santa Clara University was good fellowship, but I wasn't getting theologically trained. Mm -hmm. So that's when I, uh, like literally in a couple of days, that light came on, that recognition. And I applied to Wheaton College and ended up getting in and going sight unseen and studied uh, Christian education and spiritual formation there. How did you choose Wheaton? Oh, I, I was told that it was uh, uh, that it was a strong school academically mm-hmm. and that um, it was a place where I could continue to be challenged intellectually because I certainly was at Santa Clara. That's good. I love those words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. I loved my time at Wheaton and definitely was challenged and uh, was exposed to some um, a lot of good ideas, a lot of new ideas. But it was, for me, it was a safer place to let my guard down and, and learn and imagine and consider than Santa Clara was. Santa Clara, this may get into a, a point you want to bring up later, but Santa Clara is the first time I'd heard the word fundamentalist. Hmm. And they were talking about me. And I, probably because I didn't have a category for that word, I went ahead and sort of let people label me like that. So it wasn't an accurate label, turns out. But, um, but that was the first time I experienced it because it was either, it was, <laughs> there were only two options, right? There was like um, normal and appropriately progressive and politically correct. This was the early 90s. It was like politically correct. It was on steroids at that time, right? Or if you actually believed this archaic book, then you were a fundamentalist. Yeah. Yeah, I would think that going to Wheaton, that there probably were fundamentalists, uh, student body mm-hmm. and some of the faculty, I would guess, but the overall you wouldn't label it necessarily that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, this, it's like a scale, you know, it's like a sliding scale. Um, Continual. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's a better word. Most people there were from like a Calvinist, kind of Baptist um, non-denominational evangelical background. I mean, Wheaton College, in case you don't know, is, I mean, it's like right in the heartbeat of the evangelical movement, mm-hmm. right? This is the, this is the school that becomes, and Billy Graham comes out of Wheaton College. This, this, this is where Christianity Today starts. This is where the theologians behind the evangelical movement, um, are centered, uh, so by evangelical, we can define that now or later. But in other words, in the 1920s and 30s, there's a final parts of this debate, modern or fundamentalist. And then this third way gets gets articulated uh, by Billy Graham and those around him. And, and Wheaton becomes like the champion of this evangelical movement. So most people there would say they were just heart and soul evangelical, right? Personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible is the word of God. We're sharing the faith. Um, it doesn't have to be only a cup of cold water, which is kind of the modernist appropriation of the faith. It doesn't have to be this protect and guard all this stuff from a fundamental standpoint, but it's this progressive way forward. It's an, it's an intentional way forward. It's a way of engaging culture that really kind of takes the form of revivals with Billy Graham 
leading people into a personal relationship with Jesus. So to answer your question, Mark, there were a few Nazarene kids there. There were a few like uh, more liturgical kids like Lutherans, Episcopalians there. Uh, there were a few charismatic kids there, but mostly Baptists, Presbyterians, and most of the faculty there was like straight Calvinist, pretty strong reformed background. Yeah. I always imagine, correct me because you've been there and you're familiar with the school, very familiar with it even today, compared to a lot of the other Protestant colleges. Yeah. Protestant affiliate colleges. Is it on the more progressive end? Mm, I'd say it's more conservative. It's oh, okay. always been evangelical. I mean, it's always been independent. So in, 19, in 1853, it was started as a Wesleyan school. They couldn't make it work. So then in 1860, these um, abolitionists, the Blanchards, they bought the school and began, started it as Wheaton College. The Wheaton was the name of a major donor. And so um, Jonathan Blanchard was the president for the first 20 years. Charles Blanchard was the president for the next 40 years. So for the first 60 years of the school's history, there's only a father and son who are president. And they're, hmm. they're abolitionists. That's their, that's their claim to fame. They're like um, um, very committed to a social gospel, very committed to a faith that makes a difference in the way people relate to one another. Um, and but never associated with a specific tribe or tradition, always independent. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. So even now, I think they're on their seventh or eighth president in the history of the school, for all the way back to 1860. And I could tell you more if we're interested. But the kind of the emphasis of the school has shifted at times, kind of depending on who's the president, because the president typically is the president for ten to twenty years. There were very few that have been hmm. short term. So uh, what kind of major changes in worldview did you experience during your time there, if mm -hmm. any? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Or, or relationship with the Bible or? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's a great question. That's a huge question. <laughs> uh, it was wonderful to be exposed to... Uh, so many Christians from different backgrounds, different Christian backgrounds, uh, denominational backgrounds. It was uh, wonderful to be studying the Bible with people whose names are like in the front few pages of the Bible because <laughs> they helped translate it. Um, like literally took uh, Corinthians from a guy named Erickson, who's one of the main translators of the New Living Translation. And it was just fantastic opportunities to learn. So uh, I think worldview changes, became captivated with the idea or the reality of the soul and the formation of the soul and the care of the soul. And secondly, it was at Wheaton that I was exposed to the earliest conciliatory movements of the church where um, the common convictions of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant traditions came together historically as like the core of the faith. It was at Wheaton where I was introduced to the creeds. And um, basically, Christianity pre-holiness movement, which mm -hmm. is what was my tradition, right? So I knew a little bit about the holiness tradition, which is only a couple hundred years old. Um, and so 
I, I think we went deep and wide at Wheaton from a certain perspective. Yeah. That's Would you great. describe it as a, a, a richness of appreciation of the history of where the faith came from before it got to what you were introduced to? Yeah. Uh, for most there, I think church history began with the Reformation. It was, yeah. it was reformed Calvin, um, Calvin folks. For some, for a few, a guy named Dorset, a guy named Green, uh, probably several others um, that I just wasn't as aware of. There was an appreciation for the early church, you know, preceding the Reformation. And in graduate school, I was able to kind of camp with those folks and really get exposed to some beautiful pre-Reformation Christianity. Where did you do your graduate work? There too. I stayed and did okay. an MA there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you got an appreciation for the early church fathers and their mm -hmm. writings. Right. And probably uh, in a master's program, I would guess, soaked up a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then this whole idea that we are souls um, and the, the process of developing and forming a soul, the process of caring for a soul, uh, the mystery of the sacraments, um, the importance of symbol, um, the limits of intellectual pursuits and intellectual um, paths towards God. Uh, I think more of a holistic, physical, participated, embodied spirituality. Um, that's where I was introduced to monasticism in the just kind of first glimpses of, of that kind of a devoted life. Super rich. I mean, it was just a rich experience. And at times there was a, my reaction was, was one of, Hey, how come nobody told me about this before? And, and at times in my life, I've been super frustrated about that. Like I went to Santa Clara and I met all these vineyard people. Like those are the ones who were alive. And I'm like, Hey, how come nobody told me there was a Holy spirit? Hmm. Right. They totally told me there was a Holy spirit, but I didn't, I didn't recognize. And I wasn't taught in ways that emphasized the power of the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so at 19, the it's easy to react and say, hey, how come you guys didn't tell me that? They told me a whole lot of stuff. They taught me a ton of stuff as a high school kid. Um, when I was exposed to something that they hadn't really majored in, it was easy to point my finger and say, hey, why didn't you teach me about that? And then when I went to Wheaton College and I got introduced to the liturgical worship, I'm like, where has this been? I, you know, where's the, I thought the only authentic way to pray was just spontaneously, you know? Um, and initially there was like a, Hey, why didn't you guys teach me this? But it's just the process of growing. Nobody can dump the whole bucket of right. <laughs> Christian experience on anybody at once. So but uh, I think it is so easy to get focused into your breed of Christianity yeah. or what your church does that um, it really takes an experience like that to open up your eyes mm -hmm. to what else is out there. And, mm -hmm. and um, I think that's something that we've really dealt with that, you know, until the last few years, we really didn't have much exposure to anything outside of those evangelical mm -hmm. circles. And, mm -hmm. and it does just open your eyes up to how much bigger this faith is than, than what you thought it was. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yep. So the value, you can um, navigate that journey I think I should just make it first person. I've navigated the journey by seeing the value of those first few steps. Mm -hmm. um, they were really critical to me in emphasizing specific core truths, such as 
you can read the word of God. You can read it and you can pray to Jesus and have a, re a relationship with him. He can guide your life. These are core, right? These are core. Mm -hmm. And whereas I think I would have been introduced and more deeply formed in other truths in different traditions, right. those truths may have been de-emphasized, right? And mm -hmm. I may have had a real formal appreciation for art in worship and maybe not such a strong personal experience with um, moments of repentance followed by the embracing of a discipline followed by the strengthening of a habit, you know, like the holiness mm -hmm. spirituality that, that you and I were, uh, were formed in. So mm. uh, I'm full of appreciation for it. And despite my um, resistance to it and uh, in light of my claims that would never happen, I'm back. Like, right. I'm back. Yeah. I'm a pastor in the Nazarene church. It's, right. This is my, this is still my tribe. But you've made it. It's a, it's a, it's a different feel to your Nazarene church than other churches that I've been in. Mm -hmm. um, because I think you, you are, you do a job of, of integrating all of your other sure. practices into yeah. that. Yeah. We're trying to incorporate the wisdom of the church and some beauty of practices that mm -hmm. aren't maybe just native to the holiness tradition. Right. Yeah. But they fit. And the beauty of the denomination, one of them is, uh, especially in this part of the country, there's a lot of freedom to um, to articulate the faith and specifically to create worship experiences that um, are seen by the community as appropriate in the culture. Yeah. I'm sorry to have to cut things off with our great conversation with Nathan, but we just, the time got away from us and there was so much more that Nathan was able to share with us about what's on his heart now and going on in his life that we wanted to make that a separate episode that will come out in August, uh, third Thursday in August, where you'll be able to hear more about what uh, really is going on in the heart of Nathan Oates and what he has coming out uh, in the future that you'll be able to read. Until next time, we hope you enjoy your journey. Uh, Leanne also would like me to mention that she has a blog called Blame It on Balaam that you can find on WordPress blogs. And it's something new that she's just now letting people know about. And it'd be really wonderful if you could encourage her. A way that you can get messages to us is through the Facebook page, which is associated with this podcast. And it is not called Changing Faith. It's actually called First Non-Denominational Church of the Relatively Elect. It's a Facebook group and you can follow it, like it, join it, what have you. And, and we do ask that you go ahead and comment there and let us know about you and your journey, because we really don't know who's listening to this uh, unless we happen to personally know you and you tell us that you've listened to the podcast and either liked it or, or not. Uh, but we'd like to have other people that we don't have personal contact with who are also a part of this journey with us to go ahead and comment on the first non-denominational church of the relatively elect on Facebook. Thanks again. Thanks again.